Things are going to get rough tomorrow, Max. You stay here while I go with Washington. Dinwiddie instructed him to act on the defensive, but if need be, make prisoners of or kill and destroy anyone resisting the British control of the Ohio. Sounds like fighting words be coming. More than fighting words are coming. War is coming. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com. On today's episode, we'll bring you Chapter 28 from The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, entitled Starting a War. Boy, doesn't that sound like fun? That's right, boys and girls, you too can start a war, and it's so easy. You're right, that's not funny. But it's probably truer than we wish it was, because it is easy. Just like a single spark can start a wildfire, a single misunderstanding can start an argument, a fight, a riot, even a war. Fortunately, I work with a great bunch of epic animals... Uh, a, a great bunch of epic animals who, even though we have differences... Who's that? Uh, once in a while, we, we all try to get along really well. So um, I'd like to welcome those epic animals, Max, Liz, and Nigel. Excuse me. Um, somebody got that? I'll get it, lad. All right, Max. Never mind. Liz is already there. Oh, yeah, so she is. Is she talking to a... What is that? Oh, you mean who? That be Chip. He be the chipmunk that lives out in the front yard. Well, actually, under the front yard. So do you know Chip? Uh, I chased him around one time. Just, just having fun, you know. Uh-huh. Bet it was fun for him. Aye, he played along. Anyway, he be friends with Nigel. Where is Nigel? And, and what do you suppose this chipmunk wants? Shh, I don't know, lad, but if you'll pipe down, maybe we'll find out. Listen. Oh, uh, okay. We Can you hear what they're saying? With me keen canine sense of hearing? Yeah, with your keen canine sense of hearing. Uh, no, but don't worry, lad. I'm pretty good at reading lips, too. But he's a chipmunk. He doesn't have lips. Aye, that's not helping much. You want to what? Well, perhaps I should give you the boot. Did you hear that, lad? She'd be kicking him out. She's going to give him the boot. Really? That doesn't sound like Liz. Keep listening. She complained. I will rip it to shreds. What was that? It don't sound good, lad. She wants to rip him to shreds. Oh, must be so hungry. Uh-oh, lad. She's so hungry. We oui. uh, do not worry. I will take care of you. I will take care of everything. <laughs> Au revoir. Max, what did you hear? Oh, it's not good, lad. She says she's so hungry and that when he comes back, she's going to take care of him. You mean like take care of him? Oh, boy. I know. Let's be going on instinct. Well, we need to let Nigel know 
which, by the way, where is he? I say, uh, uh, here I am. Uh, sorry if I'm a tad late. I uh, was just tidying the place up, what? Uh, I'm expecting some company. Uh, it wouldn't happen to be another wee rodent, would it? Well, he's bigger than I. He's a, he's a chipmunk, a fine fellow. You may have met him out front at uh, uh, Chip. Uh, aye, uh, we, we've run around in some of the same circles. <laughs> well, I'm expecting him any time now. The poor fellow, he lives out in the front yard. Well, actually, under, under the, the front, front yard. yard. Uh, right. Anyway, the poor chap has become the victim of landscapers who've put a tree right over top of where his hole was, and, well, long story short, he needs a place to stay for a couple of days, so I said, come on in here and make your abode with us. We would be honoured. Well, I'm not sure if honoured is quite the right word for all of us. Uh, whatever do you mean, Max? Well, he's talking about Liz. Uh, she greeted him at the door. Oh, good. Well, not necessarily. Uh... Aye. She were talking about being hungry and and wanting to give him the boot and ripping him to shreds. Uh, it don't sound good, lad. I wouldn't bring him back here. I say, Liz? That doesn't sound like the old girl. Uh, but she is a cat and they have instincts and well... Bonjour, everybody. I am here. Sorry I am late. I had to answer the door. Your friend was here, Nigel. Uh-oh. I know. You say he was here? Oui, but he is gone now. Uh-oh. What do you mean, he's gone? Liz, what have you done? Pardon? Chip is a friend of mine, and you wanted to give him the boot? I thought the boot was a good idea. Was this about tearing him to shreds? Well, of course, you have to tear it to shreds to make it comfortable. And I understand uh, you're hungry, are you? That is not what I meant at all. If you've done what I think you've done... I don't know what you think I have done. Well, you'd I better have a... No, uh, Why don't you play the next chapter, then? Good idea. Can you turn down their mics, and uh, we'll, we'll just... Go straight to the chapter. Uh, this will be chapter 28 of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. Oh, boy. Chapter 28. Starting a War. Williamsburg, January 16th, 1754. Governor Dinwiddie held the reply letter from the French officer and clenched his jaw as he came to the heart of the matter. George Washington stood at attention while Dinwiddie read aloud the terse reply. As to the summons you send me to retire, I do not think myself obliged to obey it. Whatever may be your instructions, I am here by virtue of the orders of my general, and I entreat you, sir, not to doubt one moment, but that I am determined to conform myself to them with all the exactness and resolution which can be expected from the best officer. "'I do not think myself obliged to obey it?' Dinwiddie repeated the Frenchman's words with an angry tone. He looked at Washington and shook the letter. "'So the French refuse to leave the Ohio?' "'There's more to it than that, Governor. I was able to uncover the real motives of the French while they enjoyed an abundance of wine over dinner,' George answered. The French told me it was their absolute design to take possession of the Ohio, and by God they would do it. I wrote all of this down in my journal. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> what will your response be, sir? Dinwiddie tossed the letter onto his desk and sat back in his chair with a huff. The Virginia House of Burgesses refuses to approve funds for an armed expedition against the French. "'That's why I had to send a letter with you to begin with. "'Those tidewater planters are not concerned about the frontier.' "'He rubbed his chin and thought this through. 
We need to make them concerned. We need to make all Virginia concerned. In fact, we need to make all London concerned about this French threat. I want you to make a copy of your journal and have it to me in two days' time. Very well, Washington replied, bowing his head to the governor. He turned to leave. And Major Washington, Dinwiddie called after him. Washington turned around. Sir, I'm pleased with your work in the Ohio, despite the French reply, Dinwiddie said. Get me that journal. I plan to send you back with more than a letter this time. I plan to send you back with an army, Lieutenant Colonel Washington. Washington smiled with the promotion from the governor. Thank you, sir. I shall have my journal to you right away. Very well. You may go, Dinwiddie replied. He stood and walked over to his wall map of the Ohio Valley. I think myself obliged to respond to the French, he muttered to himself in a mocking French accent as his hand traced the rich territory at stake in this looming conflict. This time not with a pen, but with a sword. Fort Necessity, Great Meadows, Ohio Valley, May 27, 1754. Max and Kate had kept themselves hidden, shadowing Washington's difficult journey back to Williamsburg in December and January. When Kate returned to London, Max returned to Hanover County to spend time with Liz and Nigel. Gilliman took the form of a Virginia militia soldier, and he and Max then had quietly slipped in with the 159 men who had marched with Washington back out to the Ohio in April. Dinwiddie ordered the newly raised Virginia regiment, commanded by Colonel Joshua Fry, to dislodge the French, who had set up new forts in the area. The primary fort they needed to capture was Fort Duquesne, where the Ohio River split into the Allegheny and Monongahela. Washington's company of men were the first to reach the area and started work on a small fort named Fort Necessity. It was not to be their primary military stronghold, but a small defensive outpost as they scouted the area. You mean George Washington's a celebrity on both sides of the Atlantic? Max asked as he and Gilliman climbed into the one-man canvas tent. Yes. After Governor Dinwiddie published Washington's journal in Williamsburg and London, his fame and reputation for bravery spread overnight, Gilliman responded, placing his gun on his lap to clean it. Not only did the journal inform people of Washington's heroic journey to the Ohio, but it helped them understand the growing threat in the Ohio Valley. Seems to me that when the Frenchies get their hands on Washington's journal, they'll see all the secrets George learned about their forts and soldiers, too. I'd say Dinwiddie were dim-witted to publish George's journal, Max suggested. A grin grew on the Scotty's face. George didn't write about me and Kate, did he? No, he left that part out, Max, Gilliman replied with a smile. But with his new rank and reputation, Washington has now been given his first taste of difficulty in raising a militia of men and of gathering supplies, horses, and guns. All this is preparation for what he is ultimately being groomed to do. Well, I just hope he doesn't have to cross an icy river at night ever again, Max shuddered, stretching out on his stomach with his back paws behind him on the cool grass. I thought the governor weren't allowed to send an army out here. 
"'He found a way around that,' Gilliman explained. "'While the House of Burgesses was out of session, "'Dinwiddie convinced his general counsel "'to authorize him to raise a force "'to drive the French out of Ohio.' "'So what's the plan now that George be here?' "'inquired Max. "'Things are going to get rough tomorrow, Max. "'You stay here while I go with Washington.' Dinwiddie instructed him to act on the defensive, but, if need be, make prisoners of, or kill and destroy, anyone resisting the British control of the Ohio, Gilliman relayed. He stopped cleaning his gun and looked at Max. The French not only took a British fort out here without a shot, but decided that they would tell the British that the British need to be the ones to withdraw from this area. They've sent scouting parties and a small French force of soldiers to relay their message. Max furrowed his brow. Sounds like fighting words be coming. Gilliman looked out of the tent at an Indian messenger who hurried by. Washington wanted to cut the French off before their scouting parties could report their strength and location, so he sent 75 men to scout out the area. The Indian chief known as Half King was also assisting Washington's men. They had just come upon a small French force in a glen by a rocky ravine 15 miles away. The Indian messenger was telling Washington that Half-King and his Mingo warriors would lead him to the French camp. More than fighting words are coming, Gilliman looked at Max with great seriousness. War is coming. May 28th, 1754. The French soldier heard the birds chirping and the water rushing from the nearby stream. The sunrise was just beginning to make it light enough to see. He knew the refreshing coolness of the early morning would soon give way to the heat of the day. He sat up, rubbed his eyes, and saw that most of the thirty-five soldiers camped around him were still asleep. Others were beginning to stir. He stood to his feet and kicked a fellow soldier in the foot to rouse him. Revillez-vous! His friend grunted and kicked him back, rolling over for one more minute of sleep. The first soldier stretched and reached for his gun to walk down to the creek. It was then he looked up to the top of the rocky ravine and saw the line of British soldiers standing on the rim with guns pointed down at the French camp. Voici l'ennemi! He shouted, immediately alerting his fellow soldiers who sprang into action. Suddenly, shots rang out from above and below, with the British and the French firing on each other. The Indians were positioned behind the French and screamed with blood-chilling war cries as they emerged from the woods. Gilliman took his position next to Washington, ready to shield him from incoming enemy fire on his right wing. Bullets whistled by Washington's ear, and the smell and smoke of gunpowder filled the air. The explosive firefight lasted only 15 minutes. From the British raining down a barrage of fire from the top of the ravine, the French were overwhelmed and quickly surrendered. Report. What are our casualties? Washington asked his officer as they hurriedly made their way down to the bottom of the ravine. Uh, One dead, three wounded, sir, the commander replied. Washington tightened his lips and nodded. It was the first time a man had died in battle while under his command. The weight of responsibility for the lives of his men settled heavily on his mind. 
Tend to our wounded. The French expedition's commander, Joseph Coulon de Villiers de Jumanville, lay wounded, and 13 of his men had been killed. Washington's men quickly took 21 other French soldiers as prisoners. Washington and his translators started the process to accept the French surrender. Without warning, Chief Half-King approached Jumanville and leaned over him with an intimidating stare. A stripe of black war paint swept across his eyes, and his head was bald except for his red-spiked mohawk. Around his neck he wore feathers and Indian medallions strung together with a thin leather strap. Jumanville gasped and stared into the menacing eyes of this Indian warrior. Half-King spoke in French to the wounded commander. Tu ne pas encore mort, mon père. Thou art not yet dead, my father. The Indian warrior screamed, raised his hatchet, and with a war cry killed Jumanville. The other Indian warriors echoed their chief with blood-curdling screams and began killing the French wounded and scalping the dead soldiers. Halt! Put down your weapons! Washington shouted as his men rushed up to the Indians to make them stop the bloodshed. They have surrendered! The Indians reluctantly stopped, then shouted their cries of victory over the horrific blood-soaked scene. It was too late for all but one of the wounded French soldiers. The French had been massacred. One of the surviving Frenchmen held out a blood-stained piece of paper with a shaking hand and shouted with a trembling voice. What is he saying? Washington asked his two French-speaking officers, Jacob Van Brom and William Peroni. He says they were on a diplomatic mission to deliver this letter from their French commander to the British, ordering us to leave this territory, Peroni replied, scanning the bloodied document. He handed the paper to Washington. It was essentially the same type of instructions Washington himself had delivered to the French only a few months before. But he had delivered Dinwiddie's letter openly, peacefully, and even in a pleasant setting of dinner, wine, and candlelight. Washington looked on with disgust at the scene around him as he took the paper in hand. He gritted his teeth angrily. Then why were they hiding here in this ravine for these many days? If they truly were ambassadors, they knew where to find us. They should have come forth out in the open to announce their intentions, if what they are saying is true. He breathed in deeply and lifted his chin defiantly against the Frenchman. He shook his head and held up the documents. You tell this man that we believe they were here to spy on our troops and report back to French command about our military strength. These papers are only a ruse to be used if they were caught. He looked around at the massacred French camp and shook his head. No, they were spies, acting in a military capacity. We had the right to defend our camp against their forces. He handed the French document back to his translator. Tell him every word I said. As the men translated Washington's words to the captured Frenchman, Gilliman saw the one Frenchman who had witnessed the battle, yet escaped capture, run off into the woods. He would quickly report back to the French commanders what had just happened. So it begins. Fort Necessity, 8 p.m., 
July 3, 1754. Report, Washington demanded in an exhausted voice, wiping the sweat and grime of battle from his face with the back of his sleeve. His commanders huddled in close to their commander and exchanged looks of despair. Sir, all the horses and livestock have been killed, one commander reported, and with this constant rain, our gunpowder is wet. Most of the men's guns are jammed, and we have no hope of repairing them. A third of our men are dead or wounded, Officer McKay reported. Some have been drinking. A group of men broke into the rum supply to drown their fear. Sir, the French have broken off the attack and called for a parley, Van Brom added. Why would the French wish to negotiate when they are clearly winning? Washington wondered with a frown. It was over. He clenched his jaw and locked eyes with Van Brom. Go. Discuss terms of our surrender with the French. Following the Battle of Jumonville, as it quickly came to be called, Washington had returned with his men to Fort Necessity to ready the fort for battle. He feared the French and their Indian allies would retaliate for his earlier attack on them. Washington pushed his men hard to fortify the small fort with deep trenches around the perimeter. Washington had written to Dinwiddie that the fort was strong enough not to fear the attack of 500 men. But the French had left mighty Fort Duquesne with 600 soldiers, Canadian militiamen, and 100 Native American allies to surround tiny Fort Necessity, led by Jumonville's brother, Captain Louis Coulin de Villiers. When Colonel Joshua Fry died after falling from a horse, Washington was made the commander of all the Virginia forces. Reinforcements arrived, and the 22-year-old commander assumed that the French would meet his 400 men on the field of battle to fight in the traditional European way. Following a heavy rain early in the morning hours, the French troops arrived at 11 a.m. and advanced on the fort in three columns. Washington's men lined up to fight and plunged into the trenches full of rainwater to mount their defense. The French began to fire from 600 yards, but when they got within 60 yards, they suddenly spread out to the hillside surrounding the fort. They then mercilessly bombarded Washington's men for eight hours. What does it say? Washington asked, as he and his officers huddled around a small candle to read the poor handwriting on the rain-splattered paper that detailed conditions of surrender. Van Brom shrugged his shoulders, clearly uncertain of exactly what the terms actually said. He rubbed his chin. Uh, it say that you leave this fort tomorrow with no harm as long as you return their French prisoners and leave the area. They say you agree not to return for at least a year, he explained. Also, you admit to the... Van Brom squinted and tried to make out the terms of surrender. To the death... Uh, to the loss of Jumonville. Washington raised his eyebrows in surprise and in relief. He looked at his subordinate officer, McKay. These terms are quite generous. Very well. Max and Gilliman looked on from a darkened corner. They had spent the day in the heat of battle, keeping French guns that were aimed at Washington from hitting their target. With Peroni collapsed from his injuries, Van Brom is the only one who speaks or reads French, but his English is very poor, Gilliman explained to Max. If only Liz were here to explain everything, 
Max whispered back. Gilliman nodded and looked at the confused British officers huddled around the small candle as Washington signed the document. The young colonel then handed the quill to Officer McKay to add his name. Liz would tell them Washington just signed a document that will set off an entire war. Max's eyes widened. What do you mean? Washington actually just admitted that he murdered Jumonville, an ambassador on a mission of peace. Gilliman explained. George Washington has just started the French and Indian War. Hanover, July 1754 Liz and Nigel sat looking at the Pennsylvania Gazette and Benjamin Franklin's clever cartoon. While George Washington was busy tangling with the French on the frontier, the colonies were divided on whether to fight against the French and their Native American allies to keep control of the land on the western frontier. Franklin's striking word picture showed what the disunity of the colonies looked like against the growing French threat. Eleven colonies were represented by the eight segments of a dismembered snake. New England represented four colonies, and Delaware was part of Pennsylvania. The struggling young colony of Georgia was left off the cartoon, it was transitioning from a charter colony for debtors with no governor to a royal colony. Nigel and Cato had just returned from accompanying Benjamin Franklin to Albany, New York. Representatives from New England, New York, Pennsylvania, and Maryland met there to discuss plans for war and how to defend against the French. Franklin's plan was utterly brilliant, Nigel explained. His Albany plan of union suggested one government for the colonies to have an elected legislature with the power to raise troops, collect taxes, and regulate trade. But not a single colonial assembly approved the plan. Nigel paced back and forth across the desk. Benjamin said, Everyone cries, A union is necessary, but when they come to the manner and form of the union, their weak noodles are perfectly distracted. Weak noodles? Liz asked Nigel with a confused look. Nigel pointed to his head. Weak brains, my dear. Ah, I must remember this term, weak noodle, Liz replied. But Benjamin is correct, no? The colonies have separate governments and assemblies, and yet they need to find a way to provide for the common defense. It would be very difficult for the divided colonies to fight as one force. Meanwhile, the French have one government with one direction and one purse, Nigel added. My dear, I'm afraid our countries are at war. And my beloved France will fight against my enemy's beloved country, Liz replied with a frown. My two loves are at war. Indeed, Nigel adjusted his spectacles. But to quote your Henry's favorite book, Don Quixote, love and war are all one. Boy, those were the days, huh, Max? Aye, back when Mosey and Liz got along famously. Yeah, that was... Oh, uh, Liz? Nigel? Bonjour, gentlemen. Greetings, old chaps. Mind if we have a word with you? Not at all. I'm just glad to see you guys seeming to be getting along pretty well. Aye, <laughs> everything's okay then. Indeed, I say, everything is hunky-dory with Liz and me. Oui, but with you two, I have a bone to pick. 
Uh-oh, I hope it's not a bone from Wee Chip. It is not Wee Chips. That is Nigel's friend, and I would not hurt him in the least. Uh, but Les, we heard you wanting to give him the boot. He needs a place to stay. He likes to live under the ground, but he can't do that right now. So, because it is dark like a tunnel, I offered to let him sleep in Le Boot. What about ripping him to shreds? She was referring to newspaper that he could then use as bedding like I do. But what about being hungry, then? He was very hungry. Not me. Oh. Announcer, lad. Me? What about you? Well, as you fellas have probably ascertained, passing along false or incomplete information can be extremely devastating when taken out of context. Because of your rumors of war, you almost started one between me and one of my dearest friends. Hi, lad. You must be feeling pretty ashamed right now. Me? It wasn't my keen sense of canine hearing that got things all messed up. Silence! Indeed. Listen to yourselves. You both were at fault by jumping to conclusions without having all the facts, when indeed you know your friend better than to think she would harm one of my dear friends. I should be insulted, but instead I forgive you, for people do make mistakes. Even smart people, brilliant people, even myself. Even myself. Even George Washington. It is time for Jenny's corner, and she will explain what I am talking about. Miss Jenny? Do you think that if you mess up that you're worth nothing anymore, or God can't use you to do anything because you've messed up, then I got some news for you. That's not true. If George Washington had thought that way, then there never would have been the United States of America with George Washington as our commander-in-chief of the Continental Army and our first president of the United States. Because as you see in these chapters on Washington, he was a young, inexperienced soldier, and he was striving to find his place, his calling, with the gifts that he had been given and his passions. But he accidentally set off a war unknowingly. It's kind of a complicated thing, but as we explore these chapters with George Washington, you're going to see that the mistakes that he made ended up causing, yes, a lot of trouble, the French and Indian War here in the States that spread to Europe as the Seven Years' War. But he learned some invaluable lessons from that that made him a great commander later on. And it also led to the turn of events in history that needed to happen to set the course for America. Now, George Washington did escape Many, many attacks, many accidents, many bullets. It truly was divine providence, and he even says so. And I have a section here about George Washington's near misses. George Washington did get smallpox while he was on Barbados as a teenager. But look what a blessing that was. That protected him. It was like his inoculation. It gave him natural immunity, having the smallpox while on Barbados, and that protected him from the scourge of that disease in war. And he really did get fired upon by the Indian escort 15 feet away in the murdering town, as it was called. He did cross the icy Allegheny River at night on the raft, 
And he stayed on the island and he walked across the island in the morning completely fine while his companion suffered frostbite. He escaped from Fort Necessity, did not realize what he was signing in the surrender documents with the French, that he said he had murdered Jumonville. Until his dying day, George Washington believed that the French scouting party was spying and he was justified in defending his position. He was untouched in Braddock's failed battle with four bullet holes in his coat and two horses shot out from under him. I tell you, it's pretty amazing that even though he failed as an inexperienced soldier, that was part of equipping him to become a leader later on. And I bet you that there were soldiers, young officers under him that also made mistakes. So never let yourself think that because you've made a mistake, you can't do something great in the future. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and start again and go on to the next thing. And if you trust the maker to use it for good, he will. He even take your mistake and turn it into the highest good. Well, thank you, Miss Jenny. Uh, Liz, Nigel. Hey, Les, Mosey, we're, we're sorry. And Miss Jenny's right. God can take even the dumbest things people do and turn them around for good. Hi. so we come up with a wee plan. Right. Nigel, when's your friend Chip coming back over? I suppose in a couple of hours or so. Why? That gives us plenty of time. I found some old dryer vent out back, which would make a perfect tunnel for a chipmunk. Aye, and I'll go out and dig dirt until we get it all covered and it'll look like it's underground. Right, it'll be like a, a chipmunk hotel. Then, uh, um, he's hungry. W what do chipmunks eat, anyway? Uh, I just figure they eat chips. So I got potato chips, I got them nacho chips, I got some chocolate chips, some butterscotch chips. Yeah, and we'll grab a couple of those bags from the cornhole game and we can make those into a little mattress for him. Oh, this sounds way better than a little boot. Indeed, and you chaps are allowing the maker to take your mistake and work it all out for good. We oui, uh, so go make your tunnel. Indeed, and I'll help you find him some more uh, suitable food as well. Oh, that's great, Nigel. I will uh, need the credit card. Of course. Well, Max, I'd say we've got our work cut out for us. Hi, lad. I can dig it. <laughs> yeah, but not until I get the hose. So we've got things to do. I uh, guess we'll see you next time around. Thanks for joining us. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.